there, everybody. If you navigate to our Patreon account, you will be able to see our most recent set of sessions of our reading group for A Thousand Plateaus. Also, we have some sessions from January as well, and we will have some at the end of March. It's never too late to join. It only takes a dollar to get in the group. We try to make the group as comfortable and interactive as possible, and we would love to hear your voice. And, of course, no pressure if you just want to kick back, relax, and listen along as we do the reading group live. We validate that approach as well. Today, we are joined by Dr. Vernon Sisney and his student, Ryder, to discuss mentorship and apprenticeship in philosophy. Be sure to check out some of the links related to Vernon in the show notes. Okay, let's begin. Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. Today is a special episode because we have encountered some new friends. Well, one of them is an older friend, and I don't mean older, I mean a friend from before, and that is Vernon Sisney, who is a professor of interdisciplinary studies at Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania. And also with him is a student named Ryder, who is a freshman at Gettysburg. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. So in the mix, we also have Adam and Will. And Will kind of arranged this episode, so I'm going to let Will take over with a lot of the questions. I I think some of the notes that we want to hit today involve, once again, navigating academic life as it relates to philosophy, as it relates to uh, one's career aspirations. And also, we'll talk about some of our favorite philosophers as well. So, Will, by all means, take it away. When we talk about philosophy in the academy, that often comes across as... The manipulation of philosophy into a mechanism through which one can find some sort of non-existent career stability, right? Um, (laughs) That's not going to be the goal of today's episode, right? How to navigate funding or (laughs) – because the reality is we've done that. Um, So – and those questions are important and – you know, material and emotional stability is essential to philosophical work. Um, But instead, we're going to really drill down on this question of mentorship, working together or in solitude in philosophical work. But one way to start to do that is to find the ways in which one was first exposed to philosophy, right? Like the the way in which the pointed umbrella was stabbed into your thigh. Where were you? Who were you with? (laughs) What's the last thing you remember before everything went kind of dark? Um, So I'll... I'll open that question up for Ryder. How did you find yourself working with philosophical texts? Considering, you know, you're a freshman, this is all sort of a newer territory. Um, you know, how did you stumble into this stuff? Well, um, I think my passion for, uh, you know, exploring philosophical ideas kind of originated from my sister passing when I was 10 years old. She was my twin sister and it left me with a lot of really like uh, pressing questions that, you know, not a lot of 10 year olds are exposed to. And I, I, I guess I didn't really know how to uh, articulate those questions in the way that I do now. But a couple years after I was recommended uh, The Myth of Sisyphus by Albert Camus. And that just really resonated with me in so many different ways. And then of course, you know, I, I read The Stranger, The Myth of Sisyphus, and then and then I got exposed to all of existentialism. And then from there, it just 
branches out. And then I had never taken a philosophy class in high school. And so actually my first philosophy class was with Vernon this this last semester. You know, I've done a lot of reading and searching on the internet, kind of, uh, I'm, I'm self-taught, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess that's 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 kind of my my progression. Yeah, I guess what's what's interesting is we definitely got <laughs> there was a second part to this question about certain individuals. It seems like that was a kind of um, redundant question, <laughs> considering the way in which we've like framed this episode. But it's interesting that we find like once again so many people we talk to, you know, friends of the pod, <laughs> people who come on and discuss their their philosophical work. Once again, existentialism is for many American students and even a lot of European students, that way in. Totally. Um, Will, do you mind if I interrupt you a moment? I want to know how Vernon Sisney got into philosophy. <laughs> uh, my, my story is not um, as, as, you know, doesn't have as much of, a, of an existential impact as, as writers does. I was raised in an evangelical home with an evangelical father. So there are sort of these two prongs. So one is this evangelical background. Being raised in this kind of home, there are just certain questions you're not supposed to ask and certain things you're not supposed to challenge. And I always kind of had a problem with that. And I remember being very young, eight, nine, 10 years old and asking asking my dad some questions and him giving me answers and being sort of like, I don't know. I just, <laughs> that just doesn't make much sense to me, you know? And, uh, and those would be the sorts of questions that would sort of stick in my craw and this insistence that, you know, there are things you don't, you don't challenge. And then the sort of, you know, ethical impetus to press against that was part of it. And then when I was about 15 years old, I discovered the music of The Doors and, you know, watched The Doors movie and and began reading a bunch of biographies of Jim Morrison. And so one of the things that was consistent in all of these biographies was the, the, breadth of intellectual, you know, influence that had impacted Morrison's formative years. And so basically as a fanboy, I was like, well, if I read all of the stuff that Jim Morrison read, then maybe I can, you know, be the next Jim Morrison. Right. And so, you know, he read Nietzsche, he read Arthur Rambeau, he read uh, William Blake, Aldous Huxley, and I bought all of these works and, and, and read them. And so I was reading Nietzsche at 15 years old and, and I remember, again, this is where the sort of evangelical background comes in because I, I buy like the collected works of Nietzsche and I open it up and I see the Antichrist. And I'm like, you know, the evangelical in me is like, oh, yeah, I know who the Antichrist is, right? So I'm going to read this book by Nietzsche. And and it's, you know, the second section of the Antichrist is it begins something like, what do we call good? Everything which heightens man's power, ennobles, strengthens, etc. What do we call bad? That which weakens, that which debases, that which turns life against itself. In short, everything that has been hitherto called morality on the face of the earth. And I was just like, holy shit, you know, my jaw is hanging. I, I didn't even know it was possible to think things like this, much, much less to say things like this. And so um, then I went to this National Young Leaders Conference in Washington, D.C. I walk into the room. I was I was roomed with this kid named Ross. I'm wearing a Jim Morrison T-shirt. He says, oh, hey, have you read Nietzsche? And so then this conversation begins and he had he came from affluence. He had taken a philosophy class in high school and he said, well, if you like Nietzsche, then you need to read Camus. You need to read Sartre and all of these folks. So I went home and ordered the books and uh, got started. And that's really where my path began. Did I ever tell you guys how I got into philosophy? It's actually somewhat similar no. to Vernon's <laughs> This story. is one of the questions anyway. we've asked. Vernon, based on your music taste, I think we were in like high school around the same time. <laughs> 
I mean, the details are different, but the sort of general gist of the story, like there's a whole, you know, young people in, in, in the eighties and nineties reading Nietzsche, like that, that's a whole thing, <laughs> right? You could probably base like a whole, like, I don't know, genre of sitcom around that. <laughs> I just had this strange recollection. There was this guy in my town. I mean, first of all, everybody was studying karate and this guy was really good. And one of the things that he did was he bought all the books. He bought the Tao Te Ching. He bought the I Ching, all of those Asian philosophy books that were really popular in the 90s. And one of the things that he did was super strange. He would he'd either steal or buy any books just to get them off the shelf of the bookstore so other people couldn't have them so that he would have all the knowledge. Immediately, there's this mystique around these books in, in our high school. And you go to the bookstore and you can't get them. Um, so flash forward, maybe about, I don't know, two years, I made the acquaintance of an older girl at my high school and she asked me to the prom. And that was, that was wonderful. Um, however, from the time that she asked me to the prom to the time that we actually went, she started dating somebody else, but somehow I still went to the prom. And then I saw her dancing with that guy at, at the prom. And so immediately all of these existential questions were foisted onto me. And then I had to spend all night with these people driving around in their, their, their Honda Civic or whatever with the, the 303 bass tapes or whatever they were playing at the time. And then the next day I went to Walden Books. Do you remember Walden Books? You're from the East Coast, so you know Walden Books, right? And luckily enough for me, a copy of the Tao Te Ching <laughs> was sitting right there. And I pulled it off the shelf. And the first thing that I saw, actually, it does slip my mind. It was probably the part in there that says like something about like, how do you uh, organize a government? It's the same way you fry a fish. You don't cook it too long. And I was like... <laughs> I need this in my life. And thus, that began the journey. And then when I sat in my first Nietzsche Kierkegaard oh, class, I remember the professor, Charles Scott. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, scholar, I know the name. Yeah. Brilliant scholar of, you know, Foucault, Nietzsche, Heidegger, all, all sorts of stuff. He was just reading the syllabus. And in that moment, I think like every shred of Christianity just got torn out of my body just in reading the syllabus. <laughs> but anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt. It just, it came to me. Will, I'm going to go. This is what I want. Just forget, forget the, no. Like, oh, I'm sorry for making this episode like extremely interesting. Like, <laughs> no, I, like I, I, I love that. Uh, th th these, these stories of like transgression that allow us even in like the most minute moments to find these other avenues of exploration. Yeah. But, for this, I think like when it comes to these moments of the encounter, of the exposure, I'm wondering, you know, we've just spent two years where the nature of the encounter has fundamentally changed, you know, not necessarily just in an, an atomistic sense, right? But in the way in which we allow ourselves to conceive of what it means to to interact with other other bodies and like you know the 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 moment of <laughs> frankly like going to prom <laughs> is not exactly something that exists as a non-discursive <laughs> function for someone so you know in some ways when we talk about these moments of apprenticeship which are so important like what does apprenticeship look like now in the face of of coronavirus uh, in the face of two years of sitting in front of a webcam that's probably recording you, you know, doing all sorts of nefarious things in your bedroom. <laughs> Ryder, do you want to take a stab at that? 
I think, you know, like a lot of kids, I do not learn well over, over Zoom or, you know, online. So that, that kind of uh, let me exercise the muscle of letting, you know, myself teach myself, which has been really helpful in a lot of ways. Uh, that said, it is, it is really hard to make a connection with a professor over Zoom um, in the same way that, you know, being in person uh, facilitates. I feel like I've, I've learned a lot from being online, but <laughs> being in person is by far my preference. Vernon, do you do, you do those like circles out? Like, you know how sometimes a teacher will take people outside and sit them in the quad <laughs> and like sit in a circle? Like, have you had any of those strategies since the pandemic has begun? So we, I have taken classes outside a, a number of times. Um, the pandemic has, it's, it's been terrible. I mean, so let me, let me say that hearing Ryder discuss how this isolation has sort of forced him to learn on his own a lot. My experience with Ryder, day two of class, Ryder is talking about Heidegger's technology essay. And I was like, oh my God, you know, I mean, this is a person who, as he said, has never had a philosophy class and, uh, and yet is coming in, coming in day two. And, and I remember like day one, he saw, I had a Foucault shirt on. He's like, oh yeah, I like Foucault. And I sort of thought, yeah, okay. Yeah. You're, you're, you're sucking up to the prof. I understand. Uh, and then he comes in day two of class and he's, he's, he's quoting Heidegger and talking about the technology. essay. I was like, no, this kid came to play. Like he knows what he's talking about. And so there, there is that aspect of that. This isolation has had different effects on people, of course. And, uh, and that for some folks like Ryder and, and frankly, myself too, it sort of forced us to hunker down and watch a lot of lectures and do a lot of reading on our own and in isolation. And it, it, you know, the summer of 2020, I churned out, I think, four articles and uh, read something like 20 books and watch, you know, just because all I was doing was sitting at home and, you know, in my pajamas and and reading and, and thinking and stuff. But in terms of the pedagogy stuff, it, it has made it extremely difficult because like Ryder said, I, there's a certain energy in being in a classroom, the sort of reciprocity of being able to read all of the body language and the facial language and all of the sort of, as, as Will said, the non-discursive elements of communication that you lose on Zoom. It, it makes it much more difficult. And I remember in the spring of 2020, summer 2020, and the fall of 2021, I, you know, I would really encourage students a lot to meet with me one-on-one on Zoom and just try to keep those relationships going because th- those relationships, I really do think, are the sort of basis of effective pedagogy. Losing that is quite a huge impact. So yeah, any, anything you can do to try to sort of foster that feeling of making the best of it, I think is, is important. I, I think the Zoom experience was fatal to my teaching career in the sense, I, I mean, I was teaching, I, I used to teach at the university level in the extended university, mostly international students. And then I switched to teaching in prisons and then I switched to teaching. Good on you, brother. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and it was a great experience. And then it was, I was teaching at risk youth connected to the same uh, school district that was actually um, facilitating the the uh, the classes in prison. But, you know, the whole Zoom experience was just very challenging, as you know, because you just don't know. Sometimes it feels like you're speaking into the void. Many of my students, for example, they just 
because of the politics in the school and things going on at home and maybe what, whatever kind of shame they might have been feeling, weren't even appearing on camera and were scarcely appearing on audio at times. And I just said to myself, I can't do this. It caused me to just rethink everything. And that's one of the reasons that I went full gore into podcasting and getting associated with people who were, you know, publishing books and that sort of thing, a total career shift. And then, you know, doing the podcast, we have an audience who are super engaged, you know, people communicating with you via email, via Twitter. It's, you know, a non-standard teaching environment, but at the same time, it just felt far more lively than anything that was happening just in a, in a traditional Zoom class. That was a yeah. big grind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the Zoom experience in general, I've got a story about, I'm not a good name professor, but it's particularly... Basically, I had to experience along many other people sort of a professor's last class before they retired being on a, a Teams call. And that was a depressing moment because it is, you don't want to interrupt them because it's harder to get that organic thing of, you know, even, even hand reacts. If someone's going on a very long extended talk, it's very hard to find the right time, sort of that organic way of uh, starting a dialogue. And then, of course, when it ends, if someone's mic is on or there's a, a bit of excess noise, it becomes a depressing experience. It's not the sort of send-off or the sort of uh, act. It, it doesn't give you that kind of closure. I mean, in a sense, we, we did need something like Zoom before the pandemic. For example, I mean, benefits of Zoom, stuff like that, live transcripts, accessibility to it from home. I mean, we kind of always needed something hybrid for accessibility purposes. But when it's everyone on Zoom at the same time, you get that sort of collective fatigue. You get, essentially, you need to, I mean, teach, to teach in on Zoom needs to, required a complete retraining without any actual retraining process. It was a, com a complete job shift. Essentially, you kind of switched to doing uh, audio books with a Q&A at the end, or, or, or it might have been like, you know, doing a constant conference all of the time. It really took the benefits, raised accessibility of academia, but also made it more intolerable for everyone, accessible or not, because yeah. the, the very delivery, you know, what was being, what was being made accessible wasn't, you wasn't getting a, a, a Zoom camera pointing into a classroom. You was just getting it into into someone's bedroom and was reading out of paper or something of the sort. And it became very much like a you know like watching like watching a lecture on YouTube. Even when I was doing some reading groups or even doing some TA stuff, there's that sort of sense of you know is this thing on? Hello, it, it's it's a <laughs> sort of comfortably numb kind of feeling. If you go yeah. Pink Floyd, like yeah. is there anybody in there? But no, it's. <laughs> I, I will say that one thing that may, and it still remains to be seen, frankly, but that may be a sort of positive. We we have so thoroughly commodified education uh, in 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 the West that we treat it as though it's just it's just information imparted and it can be if you know equally effectively imparted by anybody as long as they've got the right credentials uh and, and under any circumstances um and and you know the idea that we can do as well what we do online as well as what we do in 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 person i think was sort of hiding in the background of of our approach to higher education and i think that if anything good comes from this it will be that there has been a collective realization that that is false you can try to mimic what you do in a classroom but you just can't replicate it you need that energy you need that interpersonal communication you need the dynamism of office hours uh the the sorts of conversations that happen over lunch or over coffee or these kinds of things you need that in-person component and i think if anything i 
I think that that's the one positive that may come out of this. I do also have like a worry about the way in which we frame discussions about accessibility and COVID. Because I worry that when we say, oh, well, look at this new set of accessibility technologies that have manifested, but only through the carcerality of the enclosure of disabled people. It's predicated yeah. on a, a it works precisely because they're not here. Right. Mm. And my fear is that with the with the because you'll find a lot of like optimistic policy oriented disability advocates trying to find the final golden ticket in COVIDian time. But my worry is that, in fact, all that does is further instantiate the circumspection because it allows us to say, oh, well, I don't want to live like this. and. All it does is provide a technology for the further the furthering of the utilization of enclosure and social circumspection on account of the fact that the technology exists there now. That folks with difference in audio processing, in fact, there's a solution for them. It's the bedroom. It's the apartment. Yeah. You know, they, they don't get to exist in the dynamic space of the classroom, but you know what? This like we we have this here, and you know the more malignant element that I found of of COVID was the fact that you found a lot of like liberal folks in pedagogy talking about disability studies, saying, "Oh, well, now we all get to experience that." No, <laughs> like what, oh. what, a, what an absurd way. To, and, and I won't name, you know, particular particular people in, you know, critical pedagogical studies, but it, it, what an absurd way to try to understand uh, the the conception of pedagogical difference and carceral logic as it pertains to disability. So I, I my my worries main are maintained through COVID. And I hope that there's a chance for us to really explode that dynamism that exists, right? The things that we consider to be the, the surplus of education, right? Because one of the things we found from COVID was, you know, Vernon's point that we, we boiled down the educa- education to, the, to, the, to a service commodity so much to the point where we actually convinced each other that like the $40,000 equivalent of a YouTube lecture is like uh, sufficient enough to sell as a product for education. I, I'm hoping that what we can show is that, in, in fact, what we need to do is find new ways to utilize these things we once thought were surpluses as the true element of the educational commons that have to be stolen and redirected in new ways. There are these interesting new technological advances that were forced by COVID but i'm i'm worried that just like every machine is social before it's technical the social element of ableism allows for the technicality of the transcript to be just another way to keep uh you know aberrant bodies enclosed because i think now that we've been subjected to you know this very kind of crude and and disparate uh, series of, of technologies, uh, I worry that it's just going to find its way to solidification. To, to save money rather than putting in ramps or lifts or you know, induction limp services or ASL transcribers, they just, they just said, it's a Zoom link. Oh God, you've put the lay of heaven down, Will. I know it's already happening, but this, yeah, this is, 
This is, yeah. I'm interested in, in what Vernon said, and I'm interested to get writers' input on this too, but the idea that the educational environment comprises far more than just the class and the delivery of information. It's about taking advantage of everything that the space of a university has to offer, you know, not only in terms of Google Mail, but, you know, the lunch breaks, the office hours, the the kinds of relationships that you build. And when I was an undergrad looking at graduate students, I was very envious of the fact that, you know, here you have a community of folks with not only a, a similar interests in terms of philosophy, but often their interests are, are, are quite narrow or attenuated, like they're into phenomenology, for example, and they get to hang out a lot and have these great discussions and so on. And it wasn't until much later that I became a graduate student. And that was one of the things that I looked forward to. I had a sort of idealized kind of nostalgia about that moment, witnessing that as a as an undergrad. Granted, I was older when I was a graduate student, but unfortunately, I didn't experience that. And it made me wonder if that's something that has diminished over time, and maybe not simply by dint of, of technology, uh, not by dint of, of COVID, rather, but maybe, you know, the, the introduction of cell phones and things like that and the way that people manage relationships or uh, value their relationships. And, and since Ryder hasn't said anything, I, I'm just curious, like, what is the climate or culture like at the school now? Like, have you made friends as a result of getting involved with philosophy? And, you know, how has it changed the way that you view your relationships in general, for example? Yeah, well... So I created my own major with the help of uh, Vernon, which is uh, postmodernism and the human condition. So my interests within philosophy are pretty different um, compared to you know most of the philosophy majors here. You know I love philosophy as a whole, um, so I can talk with them about you know certain topics, but it's it's not really what I'm you know really passionate about or invigorated by. So really the the people who I have to go and talk about those things with. Or Vernon and one of my buddies back home. So, you know, it's a small college, you know, there's not a massive uh, community here to interact with, but yeah, but I, I find my ways. Um, and I have definitely created a lot of cool relationships from philosophy. That's actually very similar to my experience in some respects. Uh, we've talked about this on previous episodes too, where, you know, the the climate and tenor of a university philosophy program can kind of produce an undercommons of its own students, right? There are, are students on the fringe who have these other interests, and they often have to maintain or cultivate those interests in spite of what's happening within the program, with the exception of, of people like Vernon and, and whoever else might be helping you out. You have to navigate the interstices of the institution to find these people. Yeah. But Vernon, maybe you can say more on that, but I, I hope you can address what I, I previously asked about the kind of arc, maybe since you were an undergrad until now, with respect to the, the sort of feeling of camaraderie or climate that happens in, in a graduate program at any given university? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a really good question. So my experience is is different than a lot of, uh, a lot of students because when I was an undergrad, I had uh, a wife and children and a full-time job. And, and so very often what I would do is I would go to class during the day and then I would work in the evening uh, and then I would go home and I would sleep for three hours and then I would get up and do it all again. And so my sense of community at the undergraduate level was very, um, was very limited, you know, just in virtue of the fact that 
I couldn't go to like the evening events where they would show movies and, and talk about movies and things like this. Um, and, and, and frankly, it was, it was kind of similar when I went to grad school, I had to find, I had to find these moments where I could sort of, you know, steal a little bit of energy from like hanging out before class, hanging out after class. If I had time between classes, hanging out in the lounges on the floors with the, with the philosophy students. And so I, I, I did the best that I could to sort of have those conversations and have those kinds of relationships in, in the margins when, when I could, I, it does seem to me that the, I don't know, the, the greater degree of atomization that, our society has sort of, you know, woven into our everyday lives in the past 10 years has, has, has changed things. I mean, I remember being a master's student at the University of Memphis, and it was very common for us to go out for, you know, to go to a three-hour graduate seminar and then go out afterwards and have drinks for an hour or two and talk about what we just talked right. about. That was that was extremely common. Um, and when I got to the PhD level, uh, it became less common. And I don't think it was because it was the PhD level. I think it was in part because of the passage of time that had, had occurred. And, um, you know, it, it became something that there were a few people, one of my buddies, for instance, who really pushed, you know, we need to get together. We need to have drinks. We need to, you know, uh, hang out and, and converse and be a, be a, be a body, you know? And, and he would push this, but it was, it became more and more difficult. People had less and less time. And there was this, you know, this sense of atomization that, that I, I and I, I don't know if it's just, if it's just like, like you said that it's, it has something to do with romanticization when, when we were younger, you know, that mm. we look and we think, oh, wow, I can't wait till I have all this time. And maybe it's never been like that. Uh, or, or if it really has, you know, gotten harder to, you know, to, to, motivate people to to go out and and just hang out and just have these conversations. Well, you know what? I, I'm only a couple hours from you in the spring or summer. I'm going to come and, and buy you a beer and we're going to make up for all of that. That sounds great. <laughs> you should swing by to me. What, what? Dude, I wish I could. It's just so icy here right now. I can't escape the ice palace, but rest assured, everybody's going to get a visit so nobody cry. We were sold these myths of like originary philosophical camaraderie. I mean, you have these loads of different spaces um, in history of philosophy. So we think about you know, if, if you do like an intro to philosophy class, you're taught about Plato and the uh, the Academy. You're taught about Aristotle and the Lyceum or the Epicurean schools. All these guys used to hang out in gardens and have to do philosophy together. You know, guys being dudes, dudes rock. I mean, you know, what the fuck is a symposium? <laughs> a symposium is the Greek term for a drinking party, and we've yeah. turned into a. If we've turned it into a, a conference, I mean, even I mean, the, a reason to drink. Well, on the, if 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 a uh, if philosophy graduate seminars didn't exist, uh, but the pub did afterwards, we would have to like retroactively go and invent seminars just to justify <laughs> going to the pub afterwards. <laughs> but I mean, even I, mean, my, I work on the Young Hegelians, and everything that they did happened in what in the back room of one wine bar in the eighteen forties. And it's I do I, I always found that sort of myth attractive of people just really going at it in the back of a bar somewhere, and then at the end we can all sort of. Uh, Pay our bar tabs and then go and then go home and not you know be torn apart like we'd be on Twitter or something, and it there's that mythic camaraderie which is even harder to get now, especially given how I guess deterritorialized it is. I mean, it's, the online thing does do this too. I mean, most of my PhD doing uh, uh, friends are I mean, scattered all across the scattered all across the globe. I mean, hell, 
here. <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm stuck. I'm stuck on the fucking rainy fascism island, for God's sake. I mean, this, <laughs> it is hard to sort of reattach ourselves to these fundamental, I guess, origin. Maybe they are just origin myths of the stuff of camaraderie, even though as we have to be constantly reminded of them throughout the very tradition. I mean, even the uh, even the Frankfurt School probably went for pints afterwards. <laughs> right, but. Like at the same time, I do think, and maybe this will be the other side of that concern that I have. Um, there have been these strange uh, affinities and affiliations that have spawned from this isolation. And the Twitter timeline becomes a mechanism of creating these alliances, right? That are not. This is going to sound so so Delizian. They're not affiliations, right? Because it's not with a, a professor or with a graduate student who, you know, is in a more advanced program, like you know, an MA and a PhD student or something. These are lines of connection. But for me, like you know, I work on Foucault, and I the most valuable Foucauldian work I've done has been on. WhatsApp conversations and Telegram chats at four in the morning looking at, you know, the archives of Bastille, not sitting in front with like a, a you know, a well-intentioned professor talking about, you know, what the threshold of biopolitics is. Uh, for me, it's been, it's been these, these different, <laughs> these lines of flight that have fundamentally altered the way I read Foucault and had you know, Foucault's a, a unique case, I think, because his status in, in, in the American Academy is, I think, largely distorted. Um, but had it not been for this time in these circles with a little bit more opacity and a little bit less credentialized, I don't think the kind of Deleuze Foucaultian education that I've received over the last three years would have looked the way that it does. You know, I'd. I'd be doing entirely different work. Uh, so I, I think that there has been this ability to just sit, hold up in your room, allows you to read society must be defended away from all the noise, <laughs> you know, away from all of the folks who are just trying to get it in another Bloomsbury edition, right? That, that to allow it to have, you know, a visceral and intense meaning to you. Uh, and then you can find those people who are, taking that intensity in their own direction. Um, so at the same time, I think it's also been an opportunity. It's just a very specific one. Yeah. I think that goes sort of to what Ryder was saying earlier about, you know, how his time in isolation due to coronavirus has, you know, forced him in a certain sense to find these other, uh, you know, other ways to teach himself. Right. And I, th I think you're right. It's interesting to think about that, but there are, you know, there are these, you call them filiations. There are these little filiations that grad programs kind of have where particular credentialed professors take in a certain crop of students and then those students go into uh, the, the academic job market and, and basically sort of, you know, foster offspring of their own and it's, you know, traced to the lineage of this one or these two institutions or something like that. And so this, this has kind of opened up opportunities for these other connections. I think that's that's an interesting and good point. 
Yeah, like I think there are things that we can steal, right? Like when, for example, Vernon, you and I DM about the difficulties of the order of things at 3 a.m., that's a fundamentally <laughs> different kind of relationship yeah. than were I an MA student asking a question to a you know professor who has five or six friends and a vested interest yeah. in a particular kind of Foucault studies yeah. maintaining itself, right? Yeah. Like So it's allowed for... Precisely because Deleuze and Guattari, you know, Calastres, Camus, whatever, are being discussed outside of this space and that we, that it's taking place beyond the, the strictures of like an almost juridical structure of the yeah. academy, right? Because like, you know, God forbid you disagree with your professor or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's not at the PhD level, it's not just disagreeing with with your professor. It's like, it's a question of whether or not you want to follow, say, the same line, mm -hmm. the, the exact same trajectory, you know, the exact same schools, the exact same mentors. Mm -hmm. um, this has allowed you to, to sort of explode those conventional paths and create kinds of kind, new kinds of planes of consistency that allow for it totally aberrant lines of flight. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that what, what this has allowed for us to do is to, again, to the point you made much earlier, to circle back once again to precisely what made the academy special and it was not actually the the education trademark it was all the things that were considered surplus to it unnecessary almost mm -hmm. you know because who goes to office hours right I do. <laughs> you know or who needs to have a lunch conversation with their professor and so on but in I fact do. that was the very thing that made it <laughs> yeah worthwhile. yeah and the things you're describing will i mean this is this is so awesome because like Ryder comes into class, right? And he's watched, he's watched all these videos and listened to all these podcasts. And, and when someone comes into your class with that kind of breadth and that kind of exposure uh, to what you're calling these, these other lines of flight and so forth, it, it, it broadens me. You know what I'm saying? It challenges me. And Ryder has challenged me and, and forced me to think about things, uh, you know, some things differently. And he's got dimensions to his thinking that aren't, you know, weren't even there in me before. And, and so, you know, um, it, it actually, I think, improves the academy, frankly. It reminds me of what Deleuze writes in Proust and Science about how the philosophical import of the non-philosophical dimension of our lives is often realized yeah. somewhat later. But I think that can be amended for those of us who are really interested in philosophy can form alongside our interest in philosophy in a way that's discursive, but also non-discursive in some sense. The kinds of encounters that we have, the kinds of people that we meet and so forth, the kind of values that we engender. Even looking back on the the whole inception of the, the pandemic, I mean, that was a, a moment that literally forced us to think not only in terms of what the hell are we going to do during the pandemic, but it also drove a lot of people that, that we now know to philosophy in a way that they didn't experience before. And that was an exciting upshot, I think, of everything. It, it's almost as if the tension broke. You know, I like to think of it, you know, the myth that I sort of spell to myself is that 
look, this is something that we always wanted. We wanted to have these communities where there was a kind of two-way, three-way communication between people, people talking about philosophical concepts, getting excited, doing reading groups. And I mean, how many times in your younger life, Vernon, did you have just like a reading group just fall apart after the first session? Every time. You know, that that actually, <laughs> yeah, that what? doesn't <laughs> happen. I would say that every little reading group that I've been involved with, you know, has had a, a liveliness and a continuity that was unprecedented until this moment. So that was kind of a bonus. Sometimes I do actually think that the that the foundation of the method that you use as an individual um, is really important. And it was something that I struggled with because like, you know, my background wasn't in philosophy until now. It's only now that I, I think I have those bearings. And even then they're fundamentally insufficient. But I'm always interested in in what people do when they first arrive at the scene of philosophy, you know? And so this question is, is primarily for Ryder because he's the the newest person to arrive at this, this problem. (laughs) Um, But now that you've been at this for just a short period of time, even in that short period of time, things change for you methodologically. Like if I look at the difference between, my first and second attempt at writing something in philosophy, there's a monumental shift. So like if you could walk in on yourself a year or so ago and say like, this is what you need to be doing. This is what you need to be looking for. This is what will make it just feel a little less overwhelming um, or a little less nauseating. What were, what were, what would be that thing? The way I started reading philosophical texts uh, was to, you know, go like line by line, just uh, really get into the details of the first run. And that was really problematic because I would spend like a day on, you know, two pages of being in nothingness. And it was terrible. Um, but some of the things I do now, um, I usually do like a, a superficial read. And then I'll, I'll go read a page from, you know, Stanford Encyclopedia, listen to a podcast, and sometimes I even, you know, do like free writes about it, you know, I'll like, um, I'll, I'll take an idea from the text and make it my prompt and then just, you know, write about it and just see what comes up. Um, and then I go back and then I read it a second time and really get to the details. Um, so yeah, that's, that's usually my methodology. Um, and I, I highly recommend it, you know, to people going now because it's just, you know, light years better. I mean, like I'm I'm a master's student, and that's something that I've I've been struggling with and trying to figure out with my friends as I work through this like monastic reading of Foucault's lectures, like uh, especially with the later stuff where you know it's back to stuff that I was important to me in undergrad, so like the Lycaeus or Alcibiades, where it's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while since I've been accountable since I've been held accountable for understanding those things. And I still struggle with pacing. You know, how what how much of myself do I dedicate to this page? How much of myself am I willing to lose? How tired am I willing to become? So I think that the management of your own exhaustion as like a student of philosophy is really important. Because we have these superficial discussions about burnout. I think in graduate school, but I worry that sometimes when we talk about it institutionally, and these institutional questions are important. In fact, they're the ones that that really get to the heart of epistemic injustice and so on. But I also think that sometimes we don't value just how draining the actual work of philosophy is. And I worry that graduate students particularly, but also people who are just like getting into the field 
for enjoyment. Don't worry about this question of burnout enough at the level of the text itself, at the level of the practice of philosophy outside of the academy. Because all too often when you talk about burnout in philosophy, it's going to be a bunch of graduate students complaining about a particular policy. And I worry that sometimes that papers over these maybe smaller, but I, I think equally um, necessary to discuss problems. So I, I like that answer where it's like, no, you don't actually have to be an expert of the the, the chapter of, being, of the bad faith chapter and being in nothingness or something like that. I mean, that's my most unhealthiest uh, practice, <laughs> you know, even at PhD level is worth it. Okay, for this Hegel piece, I need to transcribe, write, transcribe, underline every single line of the science of logic and then retranslate it to prove my own understanding of it. And then, of course, my sort of my eventually it turns out I have uh, some blood in my nicotine stream, and then I just collapse, and that's the day gone for the next week. So that is an absolutely fact. Yeah, that is. I'm still trying to accommodate myself to that same advice, but yeah, that is perfect advice for the the, the grand systemic <laughs> awfulness that is so much philosophy. Like in my, if you look at my like notes for uh, the government of the living, I I say in parentheses this has to get less detailed. Like you can't just rewrite the lecture. You can't just rewrite the logic. Um, I know at the end of the Oxford edition of the phenomenology, they do that. They, they basically rewrite it for you. <laughs> but like, uh, I, it's just not healthy, and it's it's burning me out. I, I'm like I'm looking at my stack of lectures right now. I don't want to read them. <laughs> like, like <laughs> I, and I love Foucault, I, but I don't want to read him. <laughs> it's terrible. My approach has been well. First of all, I, I think of what the end point, what, what is the end goal here? And it's what Deleuze says, to become worthy of the event. And now, not only do I have to read for this podcast and the reading group and the stuff that I'm doing for Zero Books and Gaze of Orpheus sitting here that I've been wanting to read now for two weeks, is that I just let it all flow at me. When, when it gets here, I deal with it, right? And then I just poured it over to the side. I'm taking notes, I mean, for myself as somebody who's not a graduate student. So right now I'm speaking to everybody in the room, especially us over the age of 30 or 35 who are interested in philosophy is like... Like, you know, one can be daunted by the fact like, oh, these people are producing papers, you know, philosophy is not for me or, you know, like I, I just don't have time for it. I have a kid or this or that. I think there is a way that you can manage it in small chunks. Like if I pick up a book like Gaze of Orpheus, which just has essays in it, I'm I'm fine. I'm fine. If I read just one essay in there and just squeeze it for all that it's worth, you know, I turn something that I've read into an ethical quandary. Um, and then I just kind of chew on that. Or maybe I write a poem or a song about it or something. Maybe that's just good enough. And I think one of the things that you know, one of the biggest challenges is there's just so many books out there. There's so much on Twitter, people taking pictures of their book stack. I'm looking at Vernon's um, picture in picture here of uh, his, his ginormous. Yeah, Vernon needs to get on the news to show off his. his <laughs> I'm his... sorry. <laughs> That's only a quarter of it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to be one of those pretentious people who's like, hey, look at my books here. Thank you. I think I just saw a blimp go by. <laughs> Point being is, is that we can get easily overwhelmed, discouraged, and feel daunted. But I think to be present to just any piece of work that we're working with, one sentence, one page, just being okay with that, I think is just important to your, your, your survival in this enterprise. No, I think that's, I think that's perfect. I think that's exactly right. And Nietzsche has that line somewhere about how he doesn't read 
a lot of stuff he reads very selectively. And he, I think he says something like there's, there's nothing more nauseating or something like that than a massive, you know, room full of books or something like that. The, the person who like myself has books all over the walls or something like that. I think he, 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 he's making the point basically that no, you don't want to read everything. You want to read the right stuff and really, really closely. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. Like there's this moment in, in genealogy where Nietzsche's like, you can read this text and come and read all of it and come away with nothing. Or you can read very slowly a handful of aphorisms and be completely enlightened by my genius. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, and Nietzsche's helpful too, because the idea of the selectiveness, or at least in Nietzsche, you get into Lurs, but you know, choosing what in, what is emboldening, what is the right moment, you know, in, in the throw of the dice, in the throw of chance, what is the right thing to do? Because I think when thinking about becoming worthy of the event, sometimes academia or even philosophy itself can play us for fools as to what that event is. I mean, if, even as a um, sort of just a deadline, for example, being worthy of the event does not necessarily mean being worthy of the deadline or, you know, you, you get funding and you're like, oh, fuck, I need to publish every week. I need to write papers. I can't write chapters now. I just, chapter, the, the, the PhD thing is due in like four years. I just have to write papers now. It's, you need to like find a way of selecting the event in a way that works for you. I mean, otherwise... It, you know, it is imposter syndrome producing, being yeah. worth, you know, being worthy yeah. of the event of being, uh, quote unquote, chosen. Although they get everyone, they get everyone's admission fees anyway, and I'm I'm discovering what admissions fees are. So, and uh, well, well I'm, <laughs> I'm so broke. Like I'm so broke after after the PhD process. Support us on Patreon. So so Ryder, we're, we're kind of coming up on the hour. Maybe one question that I'll ask Ryder is. I can remember one of the the best times in my life, probably when I was 18 or 19 years old, just completely enthusiastic about doing philosophy. I, I, I mean, at that time, I was a, a bit into Freud and psychoanalysis and, and those sorts of things. And then you find somebody like like Vernon, who, who's going to be a mentor and, and, and takes you along the way. What is it? Let's celebrate Vernon right now. What is it about Vernon that makes him such a great professor? And and like, what is it that having somebody like that has allowed you to do uh, as as an aspiring philosopher? Countless things. It's um, uh, Vernon teaches in a really uh, accessible and um, he has a really intimate teaching style. Um, you know, I'm I'm sure you guys have listened to his episode on machine unconscious happy hour. I think a lot of teachers teach from a, you know, uh, kind of up on a, a box or kind of, it's a, it's a hierarchical relationship. Vernon just speaks like, like everyone else in the class. In terms of our relationship and his mentorship to me, I don't know how it worked out so perfectly that, you know, I'm, I'm interested in existentialism and postmodernism and, you know, Vernon is at the the college that I'm going to. And he's, you know, given me plenty of opportunities to pursue what I want to. I think we're going to write some papers together next semester and work together in that way. There's him for. Well, people of Athens, we now have all of the evidence. Uh, Vernon has been corrupting you with philosophy. <laughs> and the hemlock has been prepared. Thank you very much, Ryder, for uh, your testimony support here. <laughs> Can I ask, Ryder, how big is the student body at Gettysburg? I think it's around uh, 2,400. So it's it's a small liberal arts college. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I'm hesitant to give advice to anyone anymore in my life, but here's one piece of advice that I would give. There's no shame 
and going to a community college, that's where I got my start. And there are a lot of wonderful and thoughtful people. I, I mean, I don't know what I don't know if Gettysburg's a community college or not, but I I went to one, and that environment is something. And I'm a little bit nostalgic about that too. When I went to the state school in the end, that had forty to fifty thousand people. I mean, you were just lost in a sea of flesh and anxiety. But being in that more intimate environment, like sometimes even the space of the university is important, like being able to go outside in the commons and not see so many people and to be able to breathe the clean air, depending on where you're at. If that's your vibe, I mean, that's certainly my vibe. But just to have that kind of buffer too, and to have a tight circle of, of relationships that are meaningful during that time really helped cement some sort of foundational ideas and skills that I had. Once again, a Another sort of non-discursive element of, of the educational process, the space in which you learn, the number of people with whom you learn, and, and so forth. Yeah, and I'm 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 so grateful for the, the small community because um, I I probably wouldn't have this relationship that I do with Vernon at a at a big school, and um, and I, I think uh, you know for those applying to uh, college planning to major on philosophy. It is it is very very beneficial to go to a small college where you can make those connections. So that that's my advice. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, and and one should not be shamed for doing that. In fact, my experience has been a lot of professors that I knew. There, there's a professor who is a professor of English who was teaching, I think, initially at Fordham, but had like a tenured teaching assignment, and he he gave it up to go teach at the community college because. It was more redeeming, I think, for him in, in some sense, right, more valuable just and, and, and more alive. Yeah. So so Gettysburg is not a community college. It's a it's a private. It's a small liberal arts college. Um, but yeah, Craig, I, I, I got my start at a community college as well. And, uh, I, you know, I, I mentioned before, um, I was working full time and and, um, you know, had a family and. I went to the community college, honestly, not expecting to do anything more than go to the community college. My reason, one of my primary reasons for continuing on to the PhD was because there were teachers at that community college who, uh, you know, gave me a faith in myself that I didn't have. Like they had faith in me that I didn't have in myself and made me believe that, you know, no, I don't have to stop here. I can continue on. But yeah, to your point about, you know, the, the large colleges, I mean, all of us who have PhDs went to one of those state schools where, or one of those, you know, big universities where the undergraduate uh, experience is just not, <laughs> it's just not, to, it's just not given any, uh, you know, any attention. And if you're taking a first, you know, a first year philosophy course, you're going to be in a seminar room with 300 other students. You know, and and the idea of having a discussion and knowing your classmates' names or your professor knowing your name, you know, it just it just doesn't happen. And in a smaller a smaller environment is 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 a really good place to foster those kinds of relationships. Because we have you on, <laughs> we we have to we have to plug some of your work, <laughs> not all of it, because if we had to list every single book or edited volume and we'll we'll definitely come back to talk about um the eventually we'll touch the Deleu uh the Foucault Derrida 
debate is I believe I think I'm probably one of the only partisans left in America on that issue who, who still thinks this body, this paper, uh, this fire is is compelling because I was I was only given Cogito and the History of Madness in class. <laughs> I never read the response to the response. Um, but so Vernon, your work right now is situated in sort of a very contemporary um, space, but you you know, as we've spoken to to Ryder here, there's a lot that he seems to pull from. And if I mis if I misrepresent your your work, Ryder, let me know from earlier discourses. So, has your work in more contemporary philosophical stuff, like um, the volume you edited on on biopower or the work on Derrida and violence? Um, has it helped you in reapproaching the works of Kierkegaard for an existentialism class or Plato, um, you know, the Republic, the Apology? You know, it, it does this, do you see a disconnect or an opportunity or a challenge that is presented in the work that you do and the classes that you teach? And what are some ways that you kind of navigate that that issue because I think it's something that a lot of like advanced graduate students deal with who are teaching too. Uh, when you say advanced graduate students, is it because you think they get so like localized on one particular figure topic or something that it becomes sort of harder to expand their purview? Um, sometimes it it, it just seems like there's a struggle to to be working on yeah you know the notion of of differential calculus and difference yeah. in repetition for nine hours a day, three hours a week. And yeah. then to all of a sudden, you know, pull the emergency break and go back and have to read, you know, uh, Rousseau's on political economy. <laughs> sure. 19 year old. Yeah, sure. So, I get you. I get you. Um, yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's, there's a kind of reciprocity between the stuff that I do and my focus in the, you know, in some of the other, Things that that writer has mentioned, for instance, Kierkegaard or Dostoevsky. I teach a Dostoevsky uh, class every couple of years that go. I love. I absolutely love. And so, one of the dimensions, one of the ways in which those figures, like Kierkegaard and Nietzsche and Dostoevsky, have I think actually influenced the way that I think about Derrida and Deleuze and Foucault and stuff is that I have a tendency sometimes to just get fascinated with puzzles. Okay. And so if I'm reading something uh, by Derrida or Foucault or Deleuze, it's just like, I get so enamored of the, you know, the, the, the complexity and the profundity of what's being talked about. And I, I get, I get sort of this fire to just understand it. But one of the things that I take from some of these earlier, you know, folks who are considered to be existentialists um, is, is precisely this idea that, that this stuff is meaningful. Like, whether you're reading Deleuze or Foucault or Derrida or, or, you know, for that matter, um, Davidson or whatever, like the point of this, the point of what we do is that this stuff has an impact in your life. It has an impact in the way that you make meaning of the world and make meaning of your relationships with others and make meaning of our, of our understanding of our relationship to the natural world. All of those things like this shit 
matters. Like that's that's what I sort of take from from the you know these figures like Kierkegaard and and Dostoevsky and Nietzsche and frankly even Plato. I mean, if you think about what Socrates is doing, what is Socrates doing? He's going up to every Athenian and saying, "Dude, what the fuck are you doing with your life right here, right now, today? Don't talk about you know examples of your piety. Tell me." you know, what matters in your life. And, and so that I think really informs the way that I think about all of, all of these figures, whether we're talking about Plato or, or Locke or Hume or, or anything. And, and that is something that I I think there is a sort of reciprocity and, and Deleuze, you know, Deleuze is very harsh when it comes to the phenomenal, uh, phenomenological tradition. And I, I suppose you could say by extension, the existentialists as well, but there is something tremendously impactful about the way that Deleuze thinks about philosophy and Foucault and Derrida too. And so I think that, you know, I, I think that these two dimensions of my work feed each other. That's great. Yeah, I think I, I one of the things that I always try to remind myself and and I think all of us on this podcast are trying to do every single day is to to show to ourselves that this shit matters. <laughs> so you know, there, there are real meaningful stakes in these questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, like even but that's precisely right with Plato. What like, uh, you know, what? <laughs> We we often forget <laughs> Socrates was fucking executed. <laughs> like you know yeah. the, the, the the anxiety that underwrites the you know the Epicurean ataraxia, the cynic form of life, the Socratic uh you know, the Socratic Epimilia Heo too, that this is deeply meaningful. And guess what? The rhizomatic is deeply meaningful right, too. Right. You know, do not become a general. Mm-hmm. <laughs> these, these are these are non-fascist ways of living. So mm-hmm. I, I I love this this and I I think with that I'm I'm going to push it over to Craig to maybe wrap it all up for us. But of course, look up Vernon's work uh, on Deleuze and uh, Derrida, particularly uh, Derrida on violence. But what I like is the bio power mm. <laughs> the bio power reader but of course i do so yeah thank you so much for coming on and Ryder, thank you so much for providing that that necessary insight about those kind of incipient moments in philosophical order yeah thank you very much for having us